to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back, everybody, to Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Lee Johnson, and I'm sitting here with my co-host, Dr. Rick Lee and Dr. Charles Peterson, and our special guest for today, Dr. Charles Hughes. We also, of course, have our bartender, Noel, here to talk with us today about the blues. Before we get started, like usual, I want to get everybody's drink order and what you're ranting or raving about this week. So, Charles Peterson, let's go to you first. What are you drinking and what's your rant or rave? Hey, hey, what's going on, everyone? I will be having, God, and I hope they have it in a can, I'll be having a Moscow Mule. Because I just won't be satisfied unless I can get that sweet ginger beer and vodka taste tinted with slight metal. (laughs) So that's my drink order. And today my rave is summertime in New York City. I had the opportunity to hang out in the Brooklyn neighborhood of Dumbo, which stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And it's been so long since I've been able to walk around in the sunshine and look at vendors and see people and sit out on a sidewalk cafe and just live. So thank you, New York City, for being New York City in the summer. And thank you, Dumbo, for, despite the dumbass name, being a great place to vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Joining us today is our good friend, Dr. Charles L. Hughes, Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College. He is also the director of the Lynn and Henry Turley Memphis Center at Rhodes and the author of two really amazing books. And please check them out if you get a chance. His first book is Country Soul, Making Music and Making Race in the American South. And his most recent book is Why Bushwick Bill Matters. Great author, great thinker, great friend. And I'm going to ask Charles, what's your drink? I'm a big fan of old fashions, and because I'm from Wisconsin originally, I'm getting mine with brandy, because I grew up in a place where I don't care about all you putting whiskey or whatever in your old fashioned. There's only one way to have an old fashioned, and it's with brandy. It's the law written in the ancient scrolls. I thought you were going to say you get it with cheese, which well, you know, no, would be kind of gross. Well, no, but you can get some cheese with it, you know, like alongside, or a bit of apple pie. That's nice, too. But uh, nice. yeah, brandy old-fashioned that's sweet. I like the sweet old-fashioned. So today, I'm going to rave about the new season of Stranger Things. This show over the last few years has been, I think, maybe at times a little bit not what I've loved, but this season has just been fantastic and I think has been capturing all of my nostalgic Stephen King and Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, all these (laughs) other buttons. But I just find it really compelling and this wonderful way to kind of escape the real world, which is certainly scarier right now than anything Stranger Things could come up with. (laughs) I've just really been loving it and and I also love that the episodes are long, so it's at least for me, prevents binging. I got to watch one and sit with it for a while and then come back to it. I don't know, it's just been bringing me some joy and when we're recording this, they're about to drop the last couple episodes of the season and I'm so excited so I'm raving about Stranger Things this year being really really good all right well we're really excited to have you with us today Rick what about you what are you drinking I'm gonna have a Negroni Noel please today I am ranting about the Supreme Court's six to three decision in the case Shin versus Ramirez I know this has been a long Supreme Court season for everyone, but this case was decided way back in May, and it severely restricted 
if not in reality, eliminated the possibility of inmates. And the two litigants in this case were both death row inmates. It restricts their ability to argue that they had ineffective counsel. It also restricts the ability of plaintiffs to raise facts of their innocence on the federal level of appeals. And I think both of these, the Supreme Court majority simply said, well, I'm sorry you're innocent, but we're going to kill you anyhow. Mm. Lee, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm just going to have a frozen margarita today, and I will be raving about Jesus Christ Superstar. Last night, my wife and I went to go see Jesus Christ Superstar. It's probably my third or fourth time to see the touring production of it. And, you know, it's a timeless piece. But last night, I had this feeling that I wish I could require every right-wing Christian to watch this (laughs) right now, today on repeat. So if you call yourself a Christian and if you're leaning towards the right or worse, Trump, please buy a copy of Jesus Christ Superstar and in particular, listen to Judas. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today I know that we're talking about the blues. Charles, why don't you set it up for us? We're going to talk about a musical genre today that I would bet my bottom dollar every American thinks that they know. I know every American probably has an idea of what they think the blues is or who plays the blues or how the blues sound or what the blues represents. And, you know, I think we should take some time to pick that apart. I think the blues is a way more complex and much more deep, not just a music or a genre, but probably a perspective and a way of being, depending on who you talk to. And luckily, our good friend Charles Hughes is here to help us work through these very, very important issues and questions. So today, we'll be talking about the blues with Charles Hughes. All right, Charles, I have one question to start us off. What do you think are the blues? Boy, that's a very narrow question. I don't know if I can come up with anything to it. <laughs> you know, the blues really are many things and contain multitudes. But I think the blues really works for me and the way I think about it and the way I hear it. And, you know, on top of my day job, I've been a musician for a long time. And I think about the blues on a musical level, too. And I started my career as a music critic. So I've really been thinking about the blues in one way or another for a long time. I mean, obviously, on one level, it is absolutely this really crucial genre of music that is at the basis of so much of what we think of as U.S. popular music and really world popular music that's been in conversation with every part of the world's musical development since its emergence, rooted in the African diaspora, very much, though, a product of enslaved Africans and African-Americans developing a new synthesized form in the United States, both out of necessity and out of genius and creativity. And it's been in dialogue with every other kind of music and culture since then. It's really at the root of so many things to the point where it's not even audible, (laughs) right, as the root (laughs) of so many ways that we think. And that's true musically in terms of the musical form and the sounds and things like that. It's also, though, true in terms of lyric, in terms of the themes, in terms of vocal techniques and all those things. So it is absolutely music. And I think at its core, 
you know, it not only shows us this really important form of music and how important specifically the African-American and African diasporic tradition is to the development of world culture, but it also reminds us more generally that music in and of itself, outside of everything else, music in and of itself is an incredibly important thing to understand and think about in relation to how the world works and how people move within it. So that's one thing. The second thing, though, on a more socio-historical level is just that it is this really, really critical innovation and practice and way of being and thinking that, again, is rooted in the music, but is also drawing very specifically on black cultural and political traditions that are, again, diasporic. And I don't want to say like, oh, they're ageless and timeless, because that actually erases a lot of the changes that have occurred over time and the way that black folks have reacted and responded. Sometimes I think people think they're being respectful when they're like, oh, this is an ageless black tradition. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's actually actually eliminating the people who are actually doing the work. Mm -hmm. But it's really at the core of experiencing the world in a specifically black context in relation to a white supremacist world, but also in relation to the development of resistant and alternative and unique and brilliant and beautiful cultures within it. It is important to think about intellectually as an intellectual practice. It is, I would argue, not only a philosophical phenomenon, but really innovation. It helps us think about American history and boy, we're in a bluesy moment, which we can talk about more what I mean by that. And then the third one, in some ways the biggest, but it's also maybe the easiest to explain, is that part of the reason the blues is so powerful and is so responded to by folks all over the place, all across history since its development, is that you know, the blues is a fundamental part of the existential condition and the attempt to figure out how to survive and how to navigate and negotiate and get by and get through painful realities. I mean, on some level, that is a human reality, right? And the blues, I think, offers us a really powerful way to think about that, too. So it's the music. It's a way of being and thinking that is specifically rooted in black historical experiences but it is also a broadly human reality <laughs> that yeah. we can use the blues to think about no matter who we are. I think that most people think the blues is very simple music. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about how does it interface with these other types of music? How does it have such a global stance despite its quote unquote technical simplicity? I think the simplicity, you know, the blues form as it's thought of, particularly right. the kind of 12 bar blues without getting too in the weeds with the musical stuff, especially because despite all my music, I mean, I could read music, but I can't really talk formal music stuff, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> but... You know, like the 12-bar blues, the idea of the one line and then the second line that repeats the first line and then a third line that's different, kind of wrapping up lyrically and musically, etc. Those forms are, in a sense, quote, simple. But what the simplicity offers is this really deep and powerful basis through which to innovate on top and around it. The way that the blues is structured around these simple structures is actually a sign of how complicated the work on top of it can be. I mean, the blues is obviously drawing internationally from the beginning because it is a product of enslavement in the United States and the forced migration and imprisonment of people from a variety of different nations and communities we don't often think of that as being a story of global synthesis. Oftentimes when people talk about music drawing on different influences, we're assuming that black influences are all the same. Whereas, of course, West African music, like West African people in that period and now, are a very diverse group of people, right? And the blues is a product of maybe shared or parallel traditions that are themselves a dialogue and a way of finding that. 
But then the blues is also drawing from British Isles ballad traditions, from indigenous music, from Hawaiian music, from Latin music of various sorts. The blues is drawing on that from the very beginning. You know, blues musicians in the earliest days, we think of them now often as just kind of playing this one thing. But mm-hmm. they could play all kinds of different stuff and thought of it as part of a blues style. So then the other side of it, though, then is then the blues has not only influenced music globally in terms of people all over the world playing the blues. And of course, one of the most prominent examples of this is in England and also in Ireland, where you have in the 50s and 60s, all of these artists like the Beatles and like the Rolling Stones and like Dusty Springfield and all these folks drawing on the blues and creating their version of it, sometimes just kind of mimicking the blues that they're hearing from the U.S., but also at its best, really combining it with their own particular experiences and traditions. But you also hear the blues reshaping West African music in the way that Mm -hmm. people are thinking, the melodic structures and the rhythmic structures. You know, there's music being made on the continent right now that is basically responding to what the response to West Africa was earlier. There's always that Mm -hmm. constant dialogue. You can hear the blues in the way that reggae develops. You can hear the blues in the way Central and South American musics of various sorts develop. So the blues remains in dialogue. And I think it's actually the simplicity of the structure or the kind of boil down ability of it that then builds on top with all these other things. I think that's actually key to that because I think that that provides a shared language on which to then add your own verse, right? It's almost like a hip hop remix. (laughs) It's a music not of the past, but of the continuing present or, you know, the changing same. I think that musically the blues does that just as much as it does lyrically or thematically. I completely agree with you that the simplicity of the blues also makes it quite malleable, quite adaptable. But I want to go back to something that you said earlier when you referred to the fact that we live in a bluesy moment. So I don't want to ask you about the malleability of the musical form of the blues, but maybe the idea of the blues. So what exactly do you mean when you say we live in a bluesy moment? Sure, yeah. Well, you know, I guess, first of all, I would clarify myself to say that we're always living in a bluesy moment because blues (laughs) is human existence at every level. What I mean by that is my understanding of the blues and my thinking about the blues as music, but also beyond and around the music is very much drawing on an idea that I learned from one of my mentors at Wisconsin, a writer named Craig Werner, and that he was pulling from the great American writer, Ralph Ellison, who talks about the blues as an impulse. And he says that the thing that has to be understood about the blues, and he is directly talking about blues music, but he's also talking about this intellectual practice of the blues. He said blues is basically a recognition that things are hard, that life is often barely survivable, that you're lucky sometimes even if you can survive, and that you have to not ignore or pretend that you're not part of that, but rather confront it. And Ellison's fantastic phrase, he says that blues is fingering the jagged grain of a brutal experience. Mm. And I think, again, you know, societally right now, we're living in a moment in which we are constantly being confronted with the brutal experience. And Ellison would talk about, and Albert Murray and Angela Davis, other folks who've written about this, would say that on some level, the African-American experiences are a brutal experience or are defined by the brutal experience in the United States. But the key to the blues impulse and the key to the way the blues, I think, teaches us how to live with this and how to survive it if we can is that the blues is also about declaring one's own survival in the middle of this. Yeah. Declaring that you haven't killed me yet. You might kill me tomorrow, 
you know, the devil might find me tonight, the cops might get me tomorrow, or whatever, right? But I'm still here. Willie Dixon, the great mm -hmm. blues songwriter from Chicago, wrote a song that Muddy Waters recorded called I'm Your Hoochie Coochie Man. The chorus of that is, I'm here, everybody knows I'm here. Now, part of that is the kind of swaggering boastfulness of the blues, which is part of how you survive a brutal experience is, you know, you claim your space. But it's also just, I'm here, right? I'm not going to talk to three philosophers about Descartes, but, <laughs> but there is something about just like declaring one's identity as a way of declaring one's presence. So that's what I mean by the bluesy moment, is that we live in a time where we are constantly faced, and I mean, we don't face this in different ways, and some of us don't face anywhere near the same others do. I'm not saying everybody's the same or faces the same. That's another thing that people get wrong about the blues, is this idea that somehow, because we're all personally getting the blues, that that somehow means everybody gets the same blues, which of course is, I believe the technical term is that's bullshit. But <laughs> there is something about the fact that as we face the brutal experience, as Ellison would teach us, that we are not just fingering the jagged grain of it, but to acknowledge it, to say hello to the fact that we're in this moment. The point of the blues is to find a way to survive it as best we can and as long as we can. With the understanding, you know, as James Baldwin and others have talked about in relation to the blues, but also in relation to just black music and black philosophy and blackness, that we also just have to acknowledge the reality of death, right? We have to acknowledge the reality of that. Yeah. So how do we survive as long as we can and as best we can? And the blues teaches us to do this not just by saying everything sucks. That's wrong. What the blues teaches us to do is to say everything is bad, <laughs> But we're here and we can find ways to survive it individually and collectively. So we live in a bluesy moment because we're faced with this brutal experience on every level. But we also live in a bluesy moment because it's a time where we really have to reckon with the fact that we got to figure out ways to just straight up keep going and to not give in to despair. That doesn't mean we don't have despairing moments or that we don't mourn. I mean, obviously, we need to mourn. We should, in fact, be very sad and angry and all of those things. The blues doesn't deny that, but I would argue that the blues says if we fall into that completely, we've actually given up our own ability to survive it. There's a great song that recently came out this year from one of the great Memphis bluesmen, Eric Gales, called Survival. It is like Blues Impulse 101, because he's talking about personal, societal, historical, some of which very specifically to the experience of being black in the United States, about all of these things. And then the chorus is, I dig down deep, I'm a survivor. Like, that's the blues, is how do you survive? The genius of the blues is that it articulates all of that, even while also not pretending or minimizing the level of the things that are trying to you know, end us and end some groups of people much more quickly and violently than others. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip 
to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Charles, you mentioned Ralph Ellison is certainly one of the great theorists of the form. And you also mentioned Albert Murray. And I love Murray's sense and his articulation of what Ellison was laying out. And he calls the blues heroic. As the Shawshank Redemption says, you can either get busy living or get busy dying. Right. And the blues forces you to do that. And the despair, the sadness that caricatures the music, I think, forms a beautiful challenge to what decision human beings will make. Right. What is your existential stance at this moment as we confront the reality of our lives? Absolutely. I think Murray also uses the word affirmation. The blues is affirmation. Mm -hmm. And like, there it is. Right. Which is so contrary to the simplified version of, oh, the blues is just sad music, which of course is missing the point. Because the blues is also very funny, and it's almost like Mm -hmm. people who think they like the blues just think it's sad. It's almost funny in a blues, it's almost like an Ouroboros of, like, you know. Now I use the word Ouroboros my one time a year as an intellectual, I am obligated to use that word, so thank you for that opportunity as well. You know, I often describe the blues as the music of poor people, which I think maybe also applies to most roots music forms, folk, country, etc., And I think it's really important to remember that poverty is not just about finances, that want and need are not just about being poor in the financial sense. The impulse there is when you're wanting, when you're needing to do something about it. And part of that is acknowledging that the want is there and that the need is there. And it is true that response to poverty is to bewail it or bemoan it. But often it's to make fun of it. It's to imagine the ways that despite how impoverished I may be in whatever area of my life, here's this other thing that at least I have my guitar, right? At least I have my juke joint to go to on Saturday night. Absolutely. And that's such a good point. And it made me think of how connected to the way we think about the blues and the way we think about poverty in the United States. There's this weird thing that'll happen where when folks talk about poverty or working class, you know, a lot of poor folks are working folks, right? It's this weird thing where they think that the proper way to talk about poor folks is just to act like poor people are just miserable all the time. Or Mm -hmm. like that the only thing that defines them is their lack, or the only thing that defines them is the difficulty of their life. And it's hard to be poor, and poor people know it, right? And everybody should know it. But what I think is interesting and really connects, and I'd never thought of this this way until you just said this, is that's also how people misconstrue the blues. And it's not just about being miserable, and it's not just about defining one's experience through what one doesn't have. I did not plan on mentioning Dolly Parton, even though I talk about Dolly Parton a lot, but... <laughs> God bless her. I know. I'm sure there's a mark somewhere in the cloud of every time everybody mentions Miss Parton. We refer to her as the sainted Dolly Parton here, Charles, <laughs> just to let you know. Yeah, there you Oh, well, there you go. Just to um, let you know. Well, and my favorite Dolly Parton song and maybe my favorite song by anybody is Code of Many Colors. And one of the things Mm. that I love about Code of Many Colors, which is not necessarily a blues impulse song, although you could make that argument, but the line that she has, which is so easy to misinterpret if you're not listening to it, which is, I tried to make them see that one is only poor, only if they choose to be. Rich as I could be in my coat of many colors. 
And a lot of people hear that and just say that she's saying, one is poor only if you choose to be. Like, that's not what she's saying at all. What she's saying is if you only think of yourself as poor, that's what you're missing. And the blues yeah. reminds us that I may not have what I need, but... I can play the guitar or I can create a heroic narrative and it's Friday night and we've been working our asses off all week. It's time to drink and dance and... Cathex. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I love about the... I mean, if the blues was just sad music, nobody would go listen to it. But Charles, I wonder if moving in this direction doesn't brush up against a point you made earlier, namely that there is a kind of universal existential experience that the blues can also speak to. And I wonder if it is universal in exactly the way that one might originally think that, because now the discussion seems to be pointing out the fact that my existential experience or impulse that we might call the blues is a relation between my own experience and something that I might call structures of domination or forces that are working against me. You referred to this earlier as brutality. So it seems to me, and like I know the least about blues music of anyone on the podcast, but it seems difficult to me to think of a blues song that would be about the fact that the weather is hot. You know, it might be affecting me, it might make my life miserable and so on. But when I think of the blues music that I know, the experience in the face of which one is saying, and I am here, are experiences like the way in which poverty affects my existential condition and my life choices and my life possibilities. The way the conditions in which I find myself affect my possibilities for desire and passion and love and so on, that these are the structures that the blues lives in rather than just like shitty things that happen, like, oh, it's raining. <laughs> if I could just tag on to that, I think that not everybody can have the blues. I think that this is the difference between wanting things to be otherwise and being impoverished, that the existential status of being impoverished is that there's something that you don't have that you need. Maybe it's a stormy Monday, but I don't need it to not be stormy. I just sort of wish it weren't. But that's a different thing than the existential condition mm. of storminess, where it's not just a stormy Monday because Tuesday's just as bad and every other day after this is going to be stormy as well. I very much hear what you're saying, and I agree with it. One of the things that I think is, again, this odd trap folks fall in when thinking about the blues. Like, to me, acknowledging the fact that the blues is speaking on one level to a kind of existential condition is not an attempt to erase the fact that, particularly within the blues, there are these very powerful conversations about how the personal relates to the structural and how the structural relates to the historical, etc., but I actually do think that there is something that is important about the way that the blues captures, at the same time, they're talking about work, they're talking about love, they're talking about health, talking about, I mean, I would argue that the weather is actually a very common topic in the blues, not just as <laughs> metaphor, but sometimes just like, 
it's raining too much, right? But it also artistically is designed to speak across experiences, which doesn't hierarchize those experiences. And the blues has to be centralized, of course, as the product of a specifically black historical experience. And that is connected to poverty, although I think that can be a dangerous game too, because the essentialization of the blues that has happened historically, including in the period of blackface minstrelsy and other things, in a weird way can actually draw on this idea that oh, only these certain folks can get the blues, which is why we as white folks or whatever have to mimic them, right? It's the love and theft thing that Eric Lott talks about. You know, and I'm somebody who then also at the same time, because I contain multitudes as well, I don't go to blues festivals anymore, really. And one of the reasons is that I got so tired of, quite frankly, white folk in the same or higher economic bracket as me, just going all in on tales of black deprivation and not being really interested in anything else. So I think there's a weird dichotomy where we have to be careful not to essentialize the blues into being only about certain kinds of experience while also acknowledging that those are central to what the blues is. There's a very fine line between the way that the blues can teach us about how to understand ourselves no matter who we are and also then this kind of weird racist over-identification or whatever. But I actually do think there is something powerful, and it expands the importance. The blues is fundamentally important as a way of understanding the world, and I think that that extends into elements of human life that the blues players themselves wanted to speak to. So, I don't know. I feel kind of conflicted about that because I totally agree with you, but I also wonder if, again, the blues as a practice and as an impulse is, in fact, a usable thing, so long as we never try to deny what its roots and its centrality remain. I don't know. It's tough. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. All right, I wanted to come back to, and not beat the dead horse, but I certainly wanted to go back to the question of who can get the blues. And it seems to me that from the last segment, I agree with Charles, but I think it's important to be clear about that. If we're thinking about the blues, not just as a genre, not some just necessarily social, ethnic, spiritual dimension, but if the blues, as Murray says, is a heroic engagement with particular conditions, then that opportunity is open for everyone. The trick is, can you open yourself up to experience and engage and use the blues as a tool to navigate the conditions of one's life? Now, we can say who has and who hasn't, who feels that they need to appropriate somebody else's experiences in order to tap into their own emotions versus legitimately tapping into their own experience to manifest the blues. And this, once again, went back to Ellison and to Murray, though based within a particular social historical group. What makes that group's efforts so powerful is the recognition of the universal humanistic possibility of the blues. 
So I'm going to be the contrary one here because I'm going to stick with my earlier claim that not everybody can have the blues, except maybe in some cases by thievery and mimicry. So here's an example. Donald Trump Jr. I don't think he can have the blues. (laughs) And let me tell you why, because I don't think in any of the senses that we've been discussing the blues so far that he has the experiences necessary to just to piggyback on what Charles was just saying, citing Murray. He doesn't have any experiences that call upon him to be heroic. He doesn't have any experiences that put him in a position of genuine need of genuine want. I mean, I've been loosely using the term poverty, but again, I want to emphasize that I don't just mean financial poverty. I mean, genuine need. And I don't think that everybody has that life. And I think that we, of course, see this, and there are many very good reasons to critique it. There are people who want to adopt that for whatever reasons. There are a variety of reasons that people want to expropriate other people's experiences, but people want to adopt that. But I do think in that instance that it's a kind of mimicry and it's not really having the blues. I don't think everybody can have the blues. No, no, I I don't disagree. I think there are a lot of people who appropriate, who mimic, who have not unlocked the earnest and sincere possibility because I think it's an emotional strength to be able to manifest and embrace and confront oneself and find the courage to continue to live. I think a Donald Trump Jr. can have the blues. Does he have the blues now? I don't know. I suspect not. But I think he can because I just think, look at who his father is. What does it mean to be raised by that dude? What I mean, yeah, you're rich and you've got all this relative power and all this. But if you think about the manifestations of his desire to get his father's approval... That dude is suffering. I could not possibly disagree with you more. (laughs) No, no. Does he have the emotional capability to confront that and recognize what his suffering's about and find strategies and techniques to deal with it? I don't know. Right. I agree with you. He doesn't have the blues, but he could have the blues if he can make a certain emotional turn. And for the listeners, I'm not a psychologist. (laughs) I agree with that last point, but for a different reason. I do believe that he could have the blues. Like, for example, Hopefully after he goes to jail, he'll have a different set of experiences and might have the blues at that point. But he doesn't have them now. Yeah, I, I agree he doesn't, with that. He doesn't have them now. And I don't think given his current situation that it's possible for him to have the blues. No, no, I agree with that. He doesn't, but he could. I agree with Charles Peterson. I think that one of the keys to the blues is this awareness that every human being faces personal demons or issues or whatever, however we want to phrase it. So Donald Trump Jr. can absolutely have the blues, but the blues is not an excuse. And this is where a lot of conservatives who have weaponized the blues, and we don't even have to go to Jr., we can look at Lee Atwater, really one of the most important and also horrible figures in American politics. The short version being, for folks who don't know, he was a North Carolina political strategist, the head of the Young Republicans, all that kind of thing. He ended up working for Senator Jesse Helms and then later for George H.W. Bush. And Atwater's whole thing politically was weaponizing white racial resentment, but not using the language of an earlier generation. He recognized that things had changed where if you went out on TV and said openly segregationist or racist things, you probably weren't going to get elected. But if you went out and used code words and code images that were basically the same thing, like dog whistle doesn't even begin. These were like dog megaphone Mm -hmm. that you would have the same effect. And he had an incredibly negative effect on helping to grow this generation of anti 
anti-black Republican politics. The Willie Horton ad being the most famous national example. Anyway, I bring up Lee Atwater because Atwater also loved the blues. He played the guitar. He performed with black musicians. He cut an album. He has an album. And like, for him, you know, I don't really know what his personal feelings were about the blues, but he recognized that the blues, at that point in particular, because it was the music that was often thought of as being of the past, could be weaponized as a form of weird white nostalgia. And the way that you could use the blues because white folks of a certain generation at that point had grown up with it or who liked it, now you could present that as like, oh, the music for everybody and it's just the blues. We all have the blues. Those horrible bullshit t-shirts that I still see every once in a while that say no black, no white, just blues. That whole myth and toxic narrative. I think there is something to the fact that can Lee Atwater personally get the blues? Can Donald Trump Jr. personally get the blues? Can Donald Trump Sr. personally get the blues? Of course, because the blues is part of the human experience. And, but, (laughs) the blues is not an excuse. And another really important point about the lesson of the blues is that the blues does not justify evil, <laughs> right? Right. The blues can articulate your inability to defeat the demons inside you. But the point of that is not to say, I have the blues, therefore I can do what I want. That's the distinction I would draw. Even though, I mean, I totally get what you mean, because like if Donald Trump Jr. showed up and started talking about his blues, I'd be like, get the fuck out of here, right? But, <laughs> but I actually think, sure, he can have the blues, but it's not an excuse. And if you give a bunch of other people the blues... I don't really give a shit about your blues. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to... I mean, I guess obviously I do want to continue to kick this dead horse, but (laughs) I just want to say that I worry a little bit about saying that the blues, as we're talking about it right now, is a universal human experience because I sometimes worry that what happens there is very similar to what feminist philosopher Marilyn Fry said, for example, about oppression, which is that now any obstacle is oppressive, There's something different between being inconvenienced and being oppressed. And I think that there's something different between feeling sad, struggling with your, as Charles Hughes said, inner demons and having the blues. And I just think that the blues has to do fundamentally with a kind of experience of impoverishment and that that's different than just wanting or preferring for things to be differently. And if I may add on to the Lee Johnson hypothesis here, (laughs) I think part of my resistance comes out of, and I heard you, Charles Hughes, mention this earlier, I don't want to lose the historical specificity of the aesthetic forms that emerge in relation to the blues. And I would like to ask a sort of musicological, historical question. If the blues is universal, why wasn't there blues music before the common era in the valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates? I do think it's important to hold in mind a certain historical specificity. And just to say, Charles, I did hear you say that in your earlier remarks. But then I want to add on and maybe go where Lee didn't want to go. But like if Donald Trump Jr.'s daddy is bad to him, boo-hoo, get a fucking therapist. You have other resources in your life with which to deal with it. I would never imagine calling that the blues. Well, a couple of things. I think if we define the blues impulse as being about different kinds of musical expression or that it can be, which both Ellison and Murray did. 
there absolutely could have been blues music in the valley of the whatever you to write, but it would have been blues impulse music. Now, this is partly, again, where I'm coming from with this tradition that I think if we talk about the blues, there's plenty of music in a variety of different traditions that bears this impulse. That doesn't mean that the particular creation of it around the blues is not one of the most momentous cultural events in the history of the modern world, right? So there absolutely could have been. The other thing I would say is this, and I guess I want to kind of hammer this again. I feel like we shouldn't reduce blues music, even if we're thinking of it as also being about dancing and, right? Like, blues musicians, they wouldn't just sing about poverty or about want or about structural racism. That doesn't mean it wasn't at the center of the intellectual tradition, but... I want to resist what I think can be this weird overcorrection where we only define the blues through it has to be rooted in this particular kind of expression of experience. It is rooted in the black experience. It is from black folks diasporically, especially in the United States. And what I think is really a problem is when white folks mimic what they think black suffering is about. That's Mm. the problem Mm. to me with a lot of white appropriations is that If you're a white musician who is coming from a position where you're trying to put on the blackface, literally or figuratively, to do that, you're denying the blues impulse by doing that. Because what you're doing is you're suggesting that you can put on a mask, whereas I think some of the most effective white blues impulse music is absolutely about mental health. Like, I don't care about Donald Trump Jr., but the idea of wrestling with these things... Again, this is kind of just me, but I think it's much more blues impulse for Bruce Springsteen to talk about how he's got depression and he's struggling with it than if he dressed up in some kind of blues outfit and sang songs about sharecropping, which thankfully he's never done. A lot of other people have, but I just use the Springsteen (laughs) example because to me that is actually more in line with what Ellison and Murray are talking about. There is a universal component to how we think about the blues, but it's not universal in the way of like, everybody's got the same blues. That's just not true, and it's not the same levels. And I think that's where blues universalism gets really dangerous and where it becomes the soundtrack for white racial performance of many kinds, whether it's Lee Atwater in his shades playing the blues to cover up the fact that he was a virulent segregationist politician or whether it is blues tourism in the Mississippi Delta where folks come and stay at that plantation hotel thing there and act like they're on safari, which I think is a very apt metaphor. So anyway, I do think the blues impulse suggests that there is a way of applying this, but that doesn't mean mimicking a particular kind of racial experience. I think that, Charles, you and I agree for the most part. Your concern is really to guard against an over-essentialization of what the blues are And I think that for me, I want to guard against an over-universalization of what the blues are. And I think we both share both of those concerns as well. I agree, I think, substantially with you as well. And I really appreciate your pointing out that a large part of my concern might have been more a concern over appropriation than it was over universalization. I do think that the question of appropriation and the erasure of racial experience from the blues Those things, to me, are the really, really crucial elements to this for two reasons. One, because as I said earlier, I think that doing so is actually a denial of the blues impulse. Right. And secondly, and this is returning back to the question of materiality, right? Like, this stuff is about power and capital. Right. The blues is a kind of music that is a commodity, (laughs) and the people who are making it are, at least hopefully, getting paid for it, right? 
So when the music itself is erased from that experience, it becomes then much easier, for example, to justify, oh, well, you know, anybody can play the blues. We don't have to support these black musicians, right? right? And right. I think the great band leader, James Reese Europe, who was a proto-jazz ragtime innovator in New York, you know, one of the things that he used to do to try to trick white folks, and he was very good at it, was he would basically say, like, okay, you think that there's something particularly special about these black musicians that I work with and this stuff we do. Well, you know, uh, well, then you can't play it, right? Like, he would mm -hmm. actually flip the script of that racial essentialism by saying, why would you go for a fake when you can have the real thing? So... I do think that is the crux. What is the blues philosophically or conceptually versus how does it actually historically work? And that, absolutely. I mean, white folks have a much easier time mimicking and being interested in black suffering than black joy or black... Like, it's this weird yeah. thing where yeah. that's what white folks like. So I think that's where the other thing of, oh, the blues is just a sad, mournful music played by these sad, mournful people, right? Like, that's where you really get into sure. those narratives that I think can be dangerous. had a really really engaged conversation felt like sometimes we we're gonna slip off the bar i'm gonna slip off the bar stool <laughs> <laughs> no i think the blues song would have to come from the floor that's right that's right <laughs> from the flow is what you got to say i slipped off my bar stool <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna turn into a little bit of why i think all of us enjoy the blues we're gonna talk a little bit about you know, who are some important artists for you? What are some important songs? And why are they important, the songs and the artists? So let's kick this off with Charles Hughes, the voice of expertise on this. I want to hear what blues artists and songs move you. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to do that music nerd thing of saying like, oh, there's so many to choose from. But uh, <laughs> I'll point to a couple who have been particularly important, one of whom is actually very contemporary. Actually, no, two of whom. I'll give you four names. I know that's a lot, but I've really, over the years, come to be so deeply, deeply compelled by Howlin' Wolf. You know, mm. one of the things I love about Howlin' Wolf is that, like a lot of people, right, he starts in Mississippi, he spends time in Memphis, then he's up in Chicago, so he kind of maps the Great Migration journey, and his music sounds like it. And when he's in Chicago... He's talking about smokestack lightning and the killing floor of the slaughterhouse and, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, he's engaging with that really urban experience. But the first time I heard his stuff, to this day, I think, it still doesn't sound like anything else. I mean, even though so many people have been influenced by him and his voice is just so incredible. And the band around him, particularly in those great chess records in Chicago... I just love Howlin' Wolf and Smokestack Lightning. And that's my go-to when people ask me, like, what's your favorite blues song? I also want to shout out Junior Kimbrough from Mississippi, who I particularly love because... His stuff is just so trancey and hypnotic. It's like a juke joint experience at its purest level where the rhythm is just driving you to dance for hours if he's playing it. And his voice, again, it's like he's singing these really interesting lyrics, but it's also what Cornel West calls the moan and like the way that his voice is working even outside of the words he's doing. 
the song that I would say comes to mind immediately is Meet Me in the City, which I just love, in part because it's also kind of a lovely song in a way that sometimes the blues, even at its best, isn't. But then I'll shout out two more contemporary artists, one of whom is also based in Memphis, Mississippi, which is Alvin Youngblood Hart, who mm. I've been listening to for a long time. When I was just a teenager in central Wisconsin, he's been so great for the last almost 30 years playing a mix of very traditional sounding stuff, even kind of pre-blues cowboy songs and work songs and that kind of stuff. Going down a cheeky go to get her right hand rule. But he also brings in Otis Redding and Judas Priest and all this other stuff. And I just love the way that he's combining old and new traditions in a way that demonstrates how blues still lives and continues to evolve may not be the right word because that makes it seem like it wasn't great before. But, you know, that it's continuing to respond. And then in that spirit, my final pick, I know I'm doing too many, but... No. I got to shout out Adia Victoria, who is a very recently emerged artist in the last few years from South Carolina. She is a self-described blues woman making some of the most powerful music right now, not only about the South and America in past and present, what it means to be a black woman in particular, what it means to be Southern, but she's also just tapping into some of the deepest veins of this blues impulse. Her stuff is so clearly engaged very directly with all of these traditions and she just kicks ass she's so rocking and so indebted to tradition but also not bound to it and she just put out a song earlier this year called in the pines so later in the church there's nowhere else to go for the people around here in the pines in the pines where the sun it never shines and you shiver where the cold wind blows in the pines in the pines where the sun it never shines where she's riffing on that old lead belly you know where did you sleep last night in the pines thing that then Nirvana kind of beautifully recreated in their particular version, right? And she's responding to both of those, I think. She's taken that line of being in the pines and being cold the whole night through, but she's making it about the experience of a young woman in a small town who feels ostracized because of who she is. Mm. And when she put it out a couple months ago, she donated all the money to whatever this abortion fund was in South Carolina. I can't remember the name of it, but she was very directly about, this is the blues now. This is where we are right now. And that's what she does with all her work. She's incredible. And is another example of how, whether they're consciously, explicitly doing this or not, blues musicians are always in dialogue with all of these ideas and experiences in a way that is helping us think through the moment, not just express it. So Adia Victoria, she's amazing. If you don't listen to her, you're really not doing it right. <laughs> wow, that's heavy. Rick, what do you think? Who are you talking about? Who are you listening to? I have to admit that blues is not a style of music that I think, oh, I really need to put this on and hear it right now. So really, I only know some of the most famous jazz musicians. Of course, as a Chicagoan, 
I, some 20 some years ago, saw Buddy Guy and Junior Wells perform together. It was at Biddy Mulligan's, which I'm not sure if it even exists anymore on the north side of Chicago. At a certain point, Buddy Guy put on an extension cord, basically, in his guitar, and he was out on the street playing guitar and you could hear cars honking from the outside and so on. Meanwhile, Junior Wells is still inside. So that was a great night of blues. And I certainly had a lot of fun then. There is something I want to mention because I think it's indicative of a point Charles Hughes made early on about what I think we've now come to call in this conversation the heroic element. And that is a scene from the Marx Brothers' A Day at the Races. The Marx Brothers are in a barn and they hear the singer Ivy Anderson. At the beginning, she's singing a blues song. And Harple Marx begins playing music along with her. And then this turns into All God's Children Got Rhythm. It turns into a raucous song and dance number and so on. And so there's a moment there where the blues, you see it transform itself already out of the blues into this raucous song and dance. So I want to shout out Ivy Anderson. I don't think she gets enough credit. And it's an, a really interesting scene in the movie. There you go. Lee, who are you listening to? Oh, man, I love so much of it. Unlike Rick, the blues is something that I always want to listen to. And it's something that has been a huge part of my life for a very long time. And I, of course, much prefer to hear live blues musicians. But if I could just point out a few songs and a few artists, I think that probably my favorite blues song is Etta James' I'd Rather Go Blind. Something told me it was all. I think that it taps into what I do love the most about the blues and roots music in general, which is, as I often say, three chords and a sad story. Note, there are more than three chords in that song, but it's an extremely sad story, and it's sad in a way that I think is unique. The other thing that I really like about blues music is the funniness of it. So my second song that I would probably recommend is Last Two Dollars. These last two dollars. It has this great story about being at the casino, being down to your last two dollars. And the chorus is, you know, I've got one for the bus fare and the other for the jukebox. <laughs> and I think that's just a great storytelling song. And then finally, I would say another aspect of blues music that I really love is when the lyrical content of the song is artfully and masterfully turning a very, very dirty song into something that could be played on the radio. And here my favorite example is Stand Up In It. And if you don't know the song, definitely listen to it. It is raunchy and hilarious and so much fun. It's a very juke joint kind of song. 
As far as artists, I do want to call out some local Memphis artists, many of whom are very good friends of mine and I don't think get enough recognition. These are people who are playing 300 nights a year, who are mostly, almost all the time, working for tips, but are actual geniuses and are keeping the legacy of blues music alive here in Memphis. So I want to call out Vince Johnson and this band, the Plantation All-Stars. Vince is a world-renowned harmonica player. His brother, Alan Johnson, on the bass is one of the best bass players you'll ever see. I want to call out Chris McDaniels, who plays with several different iterations of bands, as many musicians do, but has really got that kind of voice that definitely comes out of the church. And then finally, all members, present and past, that ever played in the Juke Joint All-Stars Band, which is the house band for Wild Bills right here in Memphis. Many of them have been legends, are legends. Nice. Good shout out to local musicians. God knows they need more support. What about you, Charles? Oh, man. I'm like everyone else. There's so much to choose from. I grew up with the blues. Gary, Indiana is my hometown. And I remember every morning, the local radio station, WWCA, had a morning blues drive. So I remember Mm. listening to John Lee Hooker going to kindergarten. Boom, 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 boom. Gonna shoot you right down. But of course, you know, the legendary artists, I'll just name a few, Muddy Waters, obviously there's something so magisterial about Muddy Waters. There's such a scope and a grandeur about him. If you get the right song, it feels like a preacher from the pulpit sometimes when I hear Muddy. And I really love his song, I Can't Be Satisfied. Yeah. Babe, I just can't be satisfied and I just can't be There's something so joyous. I mean, if we talk about this Ellisonian or this Murrayan sense of the blues as an affirmation of existence, he's so hungry to live in that song, and I absolutely love it. You know, we didn't talk about the lyrics of the blues, and one of the greatest lines in blues has to be, I didn't know I love her until they put her in the ground. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. makes you stop. I still get shivers thinking about this. So certainly, Sunhouse, Howling Wolf, of course. I'm with Charles Hughes on that one. The first time I heard Howling Wolf, ironically driving back from my maternal grandfather's funeral late at night and the radio station was on. We were moving through Memphis and I heard this voice come on and I'd never heard anything like that. And the hairs on my 11 or 12 year old arms just stood up like someone had taken ground glass on hot pavement and mixed it with honey. That was his voice. What's the great line? His voice is where the soul of man lives and never dies. So I love that. But in terms of the song I listen to the most from him, it's not any of the legendary songs. It's Down in the Bottom. It's really all about him getting caught cheating. You know what I'm but once again, that humor that Lee mentioned, the, the blues can be really funny. Oh, hilarious. But the humor yeah. and the storytelling and these iterations, you know, if you see me naked, bring me my running shoes. Just note for everyone here, if you see me naked, definitely do not bring me running shoes. <laughs> I'm not running anywhere naked. I don't know. Are we considering Big Mama Thornton blues? Why, why did you want to do this old mean thing? 
hard. Hell yeah. Yeah, because that's power right there. You know, one thing that I just want to say, because we should definitely do it, is right, is that like the blues women are really the yeah. center of the tradition, yeah. just as much, if not more, than dudes. So yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, Sister Rosetta Tharp, just legendary. And I would say more contemporarily, though not so contemporary, but he was contemporary when I was a young man. I always will have a soft spot for Robert Cray. Mm. And I love Robert Cray because mm. obviously the guitar playing is masterful. But Cray's big hit, Smoking Gun, came out at a time. I was 17 or 18, and I knew the blues, but it still felt mm. like old people's music. It still felt like the music of my mother and her generation migrating up from the South. But what he did to it, it made it feel contemporary. It made it feel modern. It made it feel accessible to me. And he just got that silky smooth soul voice on top of these blues lyrics and playing that you just, it's irresistible. So that's who off the top of my head, the people that I think about, the people that I love, but there are so many, many more. I think we are giving Noelle the blues because she <laughs> wants to get out of her existential <laughs> moment with us. Last call has been called. But before we go, I want to hear from Charles Hughes. Charles, um, all the things we've talked about regarding the blues, what do you think we should take away? Wow. I mean, this has been such an incredible conversation. It's got me thinking very deeply, including about some things that I hadn't really considered before, which is wonderful. But I just think that the two things that I would really hope that folks take away when they go and listen to the blues, which absolutely should do, especially if you're a place where there's local musicians that you can go and yes, tip the band, pay musicians always. But I think the two things I would say, one is that the blues really is a fundamental example of an argument that we shouldn't have to make, but that we still have to make. It's fundamental proof of an argument we shouldn't have to make, but that we still have to make, which is that black folks in the United States and around the diaspora have fundamentally reshaped and transformed not only the culture of the world, but the thinking of the world, the intellectual history of the world, the political history of the world. And although black folks are still often considered in a white supremacist society to somehow be secondary participants in our history, the blues is, if nothing else, a demonstration that that is a fallacy and a lie and violent, not just because it documents black suffering, but because it documents black joy and black humor and black genius and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the other thing I would say is that I have over the past, oh man, over 20 years now that I've been thinking about the blues impulse as a way to understand music, both the blues and other kinds of music, and also just how to go through life. I mean, I will really say, and this may sound like hyperbole, but I swear it's true that like the blues impulse has transformed the way I think about how I live my day-to-day life and the way that we all should (laughs) live our day-to-day life. And I don't want to claim that this is the answer to how to make it through the day, because that would be very anti-blues to do so. But (laughs) the blues impulse has helped me tremendously in a way that I hear and live and teach. Just the idea of the blues impulse from Ralph Ellison and Albert Murray and, you know, Mary Baraka and other folks who built on that and contradicted it and have the wonderful blues conversation. It's really been as important as any concept or way of thinking that I've come across in my life. And that's from everything from how I get through the day to what I listen for and what I listen to and how I can hear the blues in music that doesn't sound like the blues and how I can hear the blues experience in music of younger generations and the blues as a living, responsive form that is centered within the black experience in the United States. I just think it's about as important for me as anything that I've been able to be exposed to intellectually or musically. 
Well, Charles, we really can't thank you enough for joining us today. This has been such a great conversation. I'm hoping that maybe we can convince you to put a Spotify playlist together oh, for yeah. our listeners that we can post in the episode oh, notes. Oh, I'd be. I, I love putting together a playlist. <laughs> kinda, I kind of <laughs> suspected my, you did. Thing. Don't tempt him with a good time. <laughs> Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. But I mean, you know, y'all should contribute too, but I would oh, love yeah. to. And listeners, while you're listening to that, also hop on over to Patreon and sign up to be a supporter of this podcast. You can find us at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. Uh, looks like we need to get out of here. Anybody going to call a ride for us or are we just going to sit here and write a song? <laughs> no ride for me. I got a meeting down at the crossroads. So I got to get my guitar and get to walking. <laughs> I'm calling a cab. Thank you, Charles. Thank you again. Catch you guys next time. <laughs>